Hi, and welcome back to another episode of the Be A Better Ally podcast. My name is Trisha Friedman. I am your host, and my pronouns are she and her. If you follow Daniel Wickner or Emily Meadows on Twitter, you may have come across some of their fantastic infographics that ask us to think about intent alongside of impact. We are very fortunate today to have them both here as guests of the show. Okay, thank you so much, Trisha. My name is Emily Meadows. My pronouns are she, her. I am an LGBTQ consultant for international schools. I uh, have worked for many years previously as a school counselor in international schools in um, Europe, the Middle East, most recently at Hong Kong International School. And now I am based in the Netherlands, but I also teach for the George Washington University LGBT Health Policy and Practice graduate program. And really, I work with schools uh, worldwide to make their programs and practices more inclusive for LGBTQ folks. So... Um, I'm Daniel Wickner. I am based in Hong Kong. I'm a third grade teacher at Hong Kong International School, which is Emily's former school, although we didn't overlap during our time there. Um, and I, um, in addition to my classroom work, I also um, am a diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice consultant, um, centering on identity and how we can bring identity and identity development into the classroom um, and into our schools. And so um, my work involves just a lot of, I guess, creation and thinking and connecting around the idea of identity and how identity development is core to what we do in education. Thank you. And thank you, Daniel, so much for giving up some of your time. And I'm glad that you kind of brought up the creation piece, because that's actually the question that I wanted to start with. So anyone who's following either of you on Twitter or has seen hashtag identity centered learning uh, will likely have come across some of your infographics. And I'm just wondering if you could walk us through a little bit, like what prompted that kind of collaboration or um, creation of them because it's had a great response. And I, I love just that framework of really just let's run parallel what the intent might be uh, versus the impact. And I think, again, that's just such a great communication model and, and it has had such a strong response. So could you just talk us through a little bit, kind of like the orange origin story uh, of, of those infographics? Uh, sure. So um well, I guess it, you know, it goes back a little bit, uh, a, a little ways, and I'll, I'll give you the real origin story here. Um, after the killing of George Floyd and the, the so-called racial reckoning in the U.S. and really around the world, um, I, I'm a white person, and uh, I noticed in conversations with other white people, it's, it can be really challenging to talk about race, and there is also um, resistance amongst white people and including white educators to really bring anti-racism content into the classroom because of that challenge, because of our reluctance to talk about whiteness and, and racism and our own participation in that. And so I noticed some really common, um, some common deflections uh, that were used amongst what I would call really well-intentioned white people um, including myself, I am certainly not infallible here, uh, but I wanted to, to find a way to make that very concrete and visible so that we could sort of name it and recognize it, acknowledge it, and then move forward with solutions. And um, 
I had the idea for some content, but I am not really a graphic designer. <laughs> and I knew uh, Daniel through Twitter and his identity-centered work. So I knew that he also could bring content to the project, um, but he also has that eye for design and he has made some really inspiring and beautiful infographics on his own. And so I reached out to him to see if he'd want to collaborate and really uh, thankfully he did. So we made our first series on anti-racism impact versus intent, talking about what educators might think that they're doing, but how the potential impact might look different and how, how then they could align their impact with the intent. So we offer suggestions. Um, and then sort of after we finished that project, I wanted to do one for the work that I is really the heart of my career, which is LGBTQ inclusion. So I hoped that Daniel would say yes again, and he did. And so we, we've been um, just recently putting out our second series. So it's impact versus intent when it comes to LGBTQ inclusion in schools. And both of us working in the international context, we also bring that international lens um, to the project. Daniel, do you wanna, what did I miss? Oh, that was a like that was a really comprehensive uh, summary of the process, which has been it's it's been quite a winding journey of of um, sort of figuring out how we're going to put it together and who our audience is and and why. And I think that going back to the original audience, which you mentioned about you know people who are really well intentioned, um, ourselves included, when it comes to inclusion and wanting to be inclusive, but not necessarily thinking too much about the impact. And I think that the first infographic template which you put together was sort of centering whose feelings are centered and thinking about who's centered in this, who's centered in this action that, that I'm doing as an ally or somebody who wishes to be an ally. Am I centering my feelings of comfort or my feelings of satisfaction with myself or am I centering the actual person or the group that I'm trying to include and, and helping ourselves, which I think it's, it's been really important for me um, as, as an ally to think about this, but then also others, how can, how can we differentiate, pull these two things together and really examine them and think about really, what are we doing this for? Who are we doing this for? So I think that that, that point really, really to me uh, helped me sort of fixate on what our purpose is and what our audience was. And something that I, I think is really powerful, and I don't know if this was intentional in your design, but even that word intent, um, and, and I love that you both talk about, you know, there there are barriers to having these conversations um, and, and just your noticings around the deflections. And that word intent, I know, um, you know, many schools will use collaborative norms and one of them that I, I know there's been, you know, much debate around is this idea of like presume positive intent. And that if we always do that, you know, that yet again is an obstacle, is an easy way to deflect going a little bit deeper um, with this. So I, I just, I, I don't know if that was, again, kind of a design feature that you had discussed or was part of your noticings um, or not, but I think that's really, really important um, uh, and, and I'm also wondering the the infographics themselves for teachers who are listening to this or who have come across them, um, if they would like to share them with colleagues or use them in the classroom, are they open use for for folks to use with 
uh, whomever in whichever context. Yeah, absolutely. And I, th I, I think I perhaps can speak for both of us and say that our hope with these is, is to spark conversations around this because the, they are in some ways reductive. There's only a certain amount of information we can fit onto one infographic. And so our purpose, our intent is to spark greater, deeper conversations uh, with just kind of like a quick hitting thing. And hopefully that will lead to more meaningful um, dialogue and, and, and policy change. Well, and certainly they, they do seem to have really resonated with your audience, at least on Twitter. So hopefully, again, people are taking them and saying, yes, let's use this as a great kind of launch into deeper conversation. Um, and then, of course, whenever we are initiating conversations about identity, I think it's useful for us to have either some kind of guiding principles or just, you know, some sort of tips in mind in terms of, um, you know, the reality that having a conversation about identity, you know, as you said earlier, Emily, it's something that, uh, you know, has been avoided. If it's going to touch into privilege or power, you know, sometimes we say, oh, that's too difficult or that's too political. Um, and I think in education, we've sort of been walking on eggshells for long enough. Um, and I think maybe that's starting to shift, but certainly not significantly enough. So for folks who are saying, I love this infographic, I do want to do more work with it and have deeper conversations. Um, are there any kind of useful guidelines that you would recommend for them to keep in mind when they're, you know, just sort of starting off on that journey of let me have a longer, lengthier, uh, richer conversation about what identity is and what it might mean? Um. I would I would always say if this is something that you're starting out with, and, and certainly you can always come back to as well, but doing the work inside out, so from inside out, so starting with your own understanding of your own identity is really valuable, um, especially for folks who are in positions of privilege. It can be really tempting to want to jump to the other and sort of help or fix or, or somehow um, be part of finding solutions for marginalized folks without focusing on our own privileges. So me, for example, as a white person. Um, so having to do work around my own racial identity and my own understanding of whiteness and how I move through the world and my own racialized experience, that is very important before I can even begin to work with students effectively and safely and in a trauma-informed way. Um, so I, I would say that's like a really critical starting point. <laughs> Daniel, you do so much around identity-centered work in the classroom. What would you add to that? Well, I, I agree completely with that inside-out starting point because I, just to add on to that, I think that, um, I, I think a lot of people bristle at the word privilege because, uh, and, and I mean, I can understand why, just because it's a word that they've never really applied to themselves and it, and it clashes with their identity, it clashes with who they see themselves as. They, they don't walk around thinking that they're privileged just because they happen to be cisgender or heterosexual. It, it doesn't, that's not something that people walk around acting like they're privileged, but they are, I am. And so I, I almost feel like there's this, there's this need for, for us to, especially us members of dominant identity groups to almost have our own sort of coming out in a sense, coming out as straight in the sense that I need to, an I need to analyze, I need to get to the bottom of what it 
what it means to be straight in this world. What does that provide me? What does that, how does that privilege me? And to really dig deep into that because people who are not cishet have needed to go through all of those steps and they're way farther down this road of identity development because they've needed to out of necessity. But those of us who are members of dominant groups, we haven't, we've been able to sort of walk through life without having to really think about that. And so that inside out approach is really key to, 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 to actually dig into what it means to be who I am. And starting with that, I think is really key. I would say an additional step is understanding that this is a skill, that talking about identity is a skill and a set of skills that in order to do this, you need to do it a lot. And if you haven't yeah. spent your life doing it, then it's just like any skill. How can you expect to sit down with somebody and talk about these really, really needy things without having the practice with it and, and not being able to, to learn from that, from, from experience. So I would say those That's two things, just, like, yeah, just accepting that this is something that is a skill and that you need to practice it internal, internally before you can really bring it out. And I, you know, I, I always love that idea of rehearsal because, you know, something that I find a lot in the work that I do is, you know, whenever we're coming up to, okay, we're, you know, we're going to have more conversations about LGBTQ plus perspectives. The number one response is often like, I'm really afraid, like I'm nervous. I don't want to say the wrong thing. And so, you know, it's let's, let's rehearse some of these conversations. You know, a lot of that fear, I think stems out of that well, I haven't really done this very much. Um, and it's, you know, I, I find it's interesting because in education, you know, often you will be, I need to learn something in order to teach it, or I'm going to be substituting a math classroom. And like, I need to kind of look over this so that it's, you know, I might not um, remember all my algebraic formulations, but like, uh, you know, I'll kind of know what's going on at least that day. And I'm wondering, it's, it's great that um, you also kind of have this spectrum of Emily, you work primarily with adult learners Daniel, you work with primary school students. And so in both of those situations, um, for folks who are listening and they're, they're thinking, okay, I, I get it. I, I do want to have more identity-centered conversations. What is maybe a prompt or what would that look like in a third grade classroom versus what might that look like um, for adult learners? Um, if, if you could kind of just either give us an example or, or share with us a prompt that um, has really engaged your students that might be uh, really useful for listeners. I guess this sort of goes back to this idea of, you know, is, is talking about any of this age appropriate, you know, and, and um, that's very often a common refrain is, is, any, is this age appropriate? And the answer is yes. And there's a way to do it in an age appropriate way. The way that Emily will be talking with educators, adult educators about this would, as you mentioned, be different from how I, how we as a third grade classroom would talk about this. And so, I see my role as a third grade teacher, as an elementary teacher, as being part of the normalization sort of vanguard that these students, these students need to have a certain world that's, present, that's presented to them. And that world needs to be honest. It needs to be, it needs to reflect the honest diversity that exists. Um, and this doesn't have to be you know, in your face. Okay, kids, today we're gonna talk about X, Y, and Z but it's, it's placed strategically throughout. 
Um, and that's sort of where this identity lens um, that, that I talk about a lot comes in where we, you know, it's important to look at everything that we do and, and you know, yes, how we say things, but also how do we create projects and assignments? Um, you know, being, uh, being particular about graphics that we use um, and using those opportunities, the novels that we read, um, using those opportunities to normalize things that unfortunately have become abnormalized um, by the cishet dominant uh, world that we live in. And so to kind of push back against that a little bit behind the scenes and then hopefully spark more com conversations about it, but not kind of shoehorning it in and really trying to normalize it so that we don't have to get to the point where students are working with Emily when they're in their thirties, having never really dealt with this and see this as really abnormal. Yeah, and interestingly enough, um, some of some of what I do sort of overlaps with, with what you recommend, Daniel, which is this isn't sort of a one-off flash in the pan. Okay, we're gonna have our PD on identity. Great, check the box, moving on. When I work with schools, my preferred way to support them is on over a longer term process where we begin the conversations, but we keep embedding them throughout um, so that they gain practice, like you were saying, and that it becomes something that is part of all of all of the work. It's threaded throughout. You know, we're all walking through the world with our identities and we're using these lenses constantly, but what I like to do is try to, try to help make those lenses visible because we sort of take them for granted. We take our own lens for granted as sort of the lens. Um, and so we, we need practice seeing what it is that we're using as a lens and also practice talking about it. And so when I work with adults, Trisha, you kind of pointed out how, you know, teachers come into their content area thinking, well, if I'm going to teach this, I should learn a little bit about it. Most of the schools that I work with have teachers who are, you know, excellent in their content area and they're used to sort of knowing a lot. And so this is unfamiliar and being um, being new to a, to something is also unfamiliar. They're, they're not used to sort of not knowing how to do something because they're so excellent in their craft in so many ways. Um, and so I like to, to, you know, provide a space where adults can be vulnerable and start this process, even if they have never yet before in their 30s or 40s or 50s or however old they may be. Um, and to let them gain that practice in a safe professional setting with their peers, which can be a little hard at first, but I, I think it's valuable to, to sort of put, stretch that muscle and, and move past that discomfort. Um, and so once they have more experience doing that, then it is easier to bring it into the classroom and have those conversations with children or to make uh, to use their lens in a way that is more deliberate. So they know, OK, when I'm selecting um, text for this course, I got to make sure that I'm aware of the lens that I'm using and maybe swap that out for something a little bit more inclusive, um, try a different lens on. Um, or whether it's, you know, text or, or whatever it may be, depending on your content area. So it is like Daniel said, it's something that you, you can't just do it once. You can't kind of just shoehorn it in. It's got to be ongoing work. 
And I, I love that idea of, you know, for educators really taking that lens and applying it to the curriculum, because otherwise I find, you know, it can very easily be, I might go through the school curriculum thinking, oh, LGBTQ plus people never existed in history or, oh, all composers of music are white people. Um, you know, and I think, you know, the teacher's identity to curriculum that they know really well and love passionately, that's, that can be an obstacle too. Um, and, and so again, that, you know, I, I love Daniel, you pointed out, you know, this is about skills and really bringing skills into the application of these conversations and that self-awareness, that ability to get curious about, well, why am I so passionate about this composer? You know, where have I picked up that passion from? And where did that person get that passion for it from? Um, I think it's really interesting. And I'm wondering um, if in the work and learning that you've been doing, you've kind of come across any misconceptions about what conversations about identity are and are not. Um, and if you'd want to, you know, just kind of clear up, hey, this is, you know, again, as you were saying, people sometimes do immediately get a little defensive if it's, I'm going to have to talk about privilege, or I am going to have to ask those questions. Um, and so, you know, have you kind of come across any of those? Nope, let's remind ourselves what conversations about identity are and what conversations about identity are not. Well, I think that Emily definitely touched on this was the idea of it being patient, that, it, that it's something that's ongoing and it doesn't have to happen just now. Um, and my hope is, you know, for my students, I, I can't expect all of them to completely understand everything about themselves at the end of third grade. It's, for us to expect that from a curriculum or, or any kind of thing is, is impractical. And it's so, so thinking about in terms of it needs to be patient, it needs to be on everybody's own timeline, that, that when people disclose, when people share, how they share, to whom they share, this is, this is all on their timeline and that's who we're centering. So I'm centering my students, I'm trying to center my colleagues um, in this process of talking about identity. So my job isn't to get it out of them, but rather my job is to create the environment in which hopefully if they feel comfortable, they might want to share, but if not, that's okay because that environment sticks with them. That, that, that feeling of, of security sticks with them. And at one point, hopefully they will be able to share and establish and disclose. I love that particularly when talking about LGBTQ identities because that can sometimes not be as visible as other marginalized identities. And that really is a coming out process for a lot of people. And so, knowing that there is safety to do that, but also knowing that there's validity in not doing that if you don't want to for any reason at all. Um, and so I think that being, being able to cultivate that type of space, Daniel, is so important for children's well-being. And I guess that would lead me to my, you know, the, the main barrier that I see is folks thinking that bringing in identity-centered conversations around LGBTQ children is somehow, um, it, it's somehow promoting people to become LGBTQ when they otherwise are not, for example. There's kind of this myth around 
um, you know, if we say nothing, then then that means it won't exist, uh, particularly in countries where this can be legally difficult and culturally difficult. And there's, you know, real safety issues. Um, sometimes the school prefers to default to just silence. And um, I would really encourage people in those situations to to take another look and think about uh, an alternative and and focusing on children's well-being. Um, when we focus on, on LGBTQ children's well-being and safety, we must provide safe spaces for them in schools, regardless of the uh, cultural or legal context outside of the, the campus walls. Uh, LGBTQ kids are at significantly higher risk of a number of negative outcomes, including I know Trish, you've talked about this on your podcast before, but including depression and anxiety and suicidality and having schools which have space, safe spaces for children to be um, open about their identities, for children to see themselves reflected in a positive way throughout the learning environment, to feel welcome and included and celebrated. This can actually be a life-saving um, initiative on the part of the school. So. <clears throat> uh, while it can be challenging, I, you know, this is the work that I do. If you're not sure where to start, hire a professional <laughs> to guide you because there are ways to do it, um, regardless of where you are. And it, and it is, I think, uh, the responsibility of, of adults who take children's well-being into their hands to make sure that the school is a safe space for all children. Yeah, I, I, I really appreciate you mentioning that because there's not a school on the planet where you don't hear, you know, health and safety mentioned. And it's, you know, again, going back to what you mentioned, Daniel, at the very start, well, whose health and safety gets centered and whose is sort of off in the margins, you know, good luck with that. Um, and I also find, you know, you both work in international schools, many of whom, you know, there will inevitably be something in, if not their mission statement, the mission statement of organizations they're affiliated with that has some sort of, uh, you know, our students will be globally competent, globally minded. And, you know, what does that mean? Even for students who might never identify as LGBTQ+, you know, they also, you know, need to have that awareness of identities that are not their own. And I'm, I'm wondering, uh, you know, it's because sometimes I hear folks just make the assumption, well, of course, our whole school is a safe space. Of course it is. Definitely my students would feel comfortable or, you know, that's not an issue here. And, you know, I'm wondering if, if either of you would like to just speak a little bit to, you know, if you're making that assumption, here's a way to test it or check it, or here's something that I have found is really useful um, for really ensuring that, um, that that's accurate. And, you know, with the, the caveat that, you know, is any space 100% safe? Probably not. But um, for those who, you know, I'm, I'm just going to stop the conversation right there. Of course, our school is safe. Um, what is maybe something that they'd want to think a little bit more about? Or how, how might they actually dig into that assumption? I would say that, you know, it, it gets back to what Emily was saying in terms of how visible things are. And, and it gets back to privilege. It gets back to what, what we see. If we don't see it, then it's not it's not a problem. And so, I mean, I would propose looking at things from a different angle that, that safety is advocacy, that 
that it's not just about like, okay, is everyone okay? You know, sort of looking around, but rather like there are people who are not okay, starting with that assumption that there are people who are not okay. And there's also people who could be more okay. And who are those people? Who are those identities in our communities who could be more okay right now? And maybe they're okay in some parts of who they are, but other parts of who they are are considered toxic within this community. So what, just sort of seeing, you know, are, what are we moving? You know, seeing, are we moving? Are we advocating for something? Not seeing this as some kind of stasis or, you know, this place where, okay, we're just in this, sa this state of safety. Safety is not a state, safety is a direction. Um, and, and shifting that mindset, I think is really important. Yes, I, I hear that often, um, the idea that th this isn't a problem here. Um, you know, there are assessments to look into this a bit deeper. That being said, it's sort of the, the prove it again, prove it again and again and again uh, before we will take action. And sometimes those assessments are just time consuming and expensive. I would say you can do your own self-assessment by assuming that approximately 5% of the children in your school are or will at some point identify as LGBTQ. That's a conservative estimate, but let's say at least 5%. And then assume that you've got a school of 1,000 kids, that's 50 kids. Where do those 50 children see themselves reflected in your school? If they are not seeing themselves reflected, that's enough of an assessment that you don't need to hire somebody to come in and do that for you. You just know that, that you've got work to do. So, um, you know, if it, if it is what is needed to move the needle, then by all means, it's, there's nothing wrong with the assessments. But I just caution folks not to think that um, because you haven't seen, you know, sort of a survey to to prove it, um, it doesn't mean that it's not a problem. We need to just assume that you've got LGBTQ kids at the school, and if they're not being actively and intentionally included in your curriculum, in your spaces, um, and being represented throughout the school, then then that that there is a problem. And and to add on top of that, for you know, it's, it's not just for, you know, LGBTQ plus students in the school community. It's for everybody who identifies as LGBTQ, who all of the cishet students will encounter in their lives, that this is, this is about the safety of the greater community and everything that all of the downstream effects of this educational process create. And so, so thinking about this in terms of, okay, we're just trying to protect this minority of students, well, actually, we're trying to give all students the, the tools to be just, to be fair and inclusive and, uh, towards the, the world that they encounter in their future. So to see this as only sort of like a small part of what's being done, it, it has to be systemic, it has to be large. Um, and for this whole global mindset that international schools are thinking about, this this is really important. This is key. Yeah. You know, what, what comes to mind is how, you know, I, I will often hear about um, there might be a book that centers an LGBTQ plus perspective and uh, 
parents might say, well, I, I would like to opt my child out of that conversation. And the reality is you, your child can't opt out of society. You know, that's, is that the pathway that you want to set them up on? Um, you know, but I would also say there's a part of school leadership that, you know, I really love that phrase that you mentioned, Daniel, that safety is advocacy. And, uh, you know, I, I think what you're, what you're talking about is also something that needs to be amplified by the school leadership. And I'm wondering if either or both of you would want to talk about, you know, the work that we need school leaders to do too. Um, it's been this past year that there's been a lot of uh, statistics that have come up about, you know, just how very cis, straight, white male uh, school leadership is um, in the international circuit, but I'm, I'm guessing basically just about everywhere. So, you know, do you have any anecdotes about working with school leadership and, and how, again, they are also a part of having to dig in to really think about how, how is identity something that we talk about in schools and, and how is it, I love that you're really framing it as this is a spectrum and we're developing students' capacity to reflect, to think about identities, to connect with other identities. So where does school leadership fit into this equation for you? Um, when I, what, the schools that I work with where, where there has been really strong success um, in advancing inclusion for LGBTQ students, leadership is a partner and an advocate and an ally and um, they make that really clear to their faculty. So sometimes faculty um, might have good intentions and they might even be pretty well prepared to do the work, but it can be scary to, um, to breach these subjects when they're not sure if their administrators are going to be supportive. Let's say you do have a parent who's upset and, and doesn't like that this conversation is happening in the classroom. Uh, you know, is my job going to be on the line? It, it, am I going to have that have an uncomfortable conversation with the head of school about this? So, um, you know, we definitely want to center the voices of students and folks in the community. And at the same time, we really do need leadership to take a stance here and make their um, make their position known so that uh, ad allies and advocates can feel uh, confident that they will be supported in this work because I, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to downplay the challenges that can come with doing this kind of work. It, it does require preparation. It requires um, support. It requires some discomfort. I think it's all more than worth it. Um, but, but it does, it, it does best when we've got people who are holding power saying, yes, please. Teach me. Let's learn together. Let's move forward on this green light. <laughs> yeah, to, to add on to that, I, I, I feel like administrators, school leaders, are capable of what they're hired for, and by that I mean where in administrator, especially international school administrator job descriptions, is advocacy supporting marginalized identities. Um, where is that in their job description, in their contract? Where is that in the, the set of competencies that we hire for? We, we don't do that. And so, and it's true also for teachers, not just for school leaders, that, that you're hired as an educator, as a teacher, because of a certain set of, of criteria. 
And this, these, these sets of skills that we've been discussing, these abilities to do this, are nowhere to be found. And so why would teachers or leaders spend time really learning or digging deeply into it when it's not going to be valued in, in their actual work? And so I think that that's often how school leaders might see it as like, well, this isn't really part of my job, but it, I think that we can agree that it should be. And I think that that's where the language around what it means to be a school leader, especially in intersectional spaces like international schools, what that actually means, what, what are we actually expecting from our leaders and who are we hiring for? And are we hiring a person who's gonna be able to advocate, who's gonna be able to support those ideas like Emily was saying and, and give the green light to these things and be supportive? Or is that just some kind of thing that's extra that's thrown in there if they like it or if they're kind of, it's kind of their thing? It needs to become a core part of what they do as leaders and what we do as educators. Absolutely. And, you know, something that I find really fascinating is, you know, just looking back on the different professional development libraries that have been in schools that I've worked for. And again, how we see just one perspective often through all of the books or, you know, a lot of schools will know maybe the names of four or five consultants and they all know those four or five people. But, um, you know, I, I honestly can only think of one example where I've gone to my school's professional development library and seen anything about uh, LGBTQ plus students, right? Like that's, I, I think that would still be um, outside of the norm. And I think it's really important. Uh, you know, again, Emily, you brought up those statistics and schools that care about safety. It's again, the safety of whom. So I'm wondering um, which resources have been really kind of fundamental to informing both of your work as it applies to um, LGBTQ plus identities, uh, again, and not just supporting those students, but I really like that our conversation has said this is this is for all of our all of our students. So do you have any any resources that you would say, oh, okay, uh, yeah, our professional development library also doesn't have this. What might we what might we add to it for next academic year? Um. So a lot of, I, I come at this from the background of a school counselor, but also as an academic. So I hold a PhD and my research has been all around inclusion for LGBTQ students in international schools. So my, uh, to be frank, my favorite resources are, are <laughs> academic papers, but I like to use those and translate them into um, more applied work that I can bring into schools and help them understand. I think that that can be really comforting for schools when they, there's a lot of emotions and um, opinions around gender and sexuality. And so if I can bring in something that's sort of in black and white, um, has been peer reviewed, has been published in an academic journal, this helps people, especially um, decision makers say, okay, yeah, I can back this up. I can, I can, um, I can, with with our parent community, with with maybe reluctant teachers who um, might not be ready for this, I can stand behind it because I feel like I have the the evidence to show that this is important and valuable work. Um, one of the things that I like, though, for people who um, may not want to be reading journals, um, and teachers we know have so little free time <laughs> for for things like that. I love things like podcasts. I mean, honestly, like I think listening to this podcast is great you can do it sort of on your commute or while you're making lunch or whatever it is that you do um I think that's a really good resource that, that fits into people's days more practically I also think um 
if you know for people who enjoy reading for fun and maybe don't want like a professional resource necessarily when they're cuddling up in bed but they they want to read a book there's loads of awesome books that you can buy like novels that you can buy that feature that positive and whole and complex lgbtq characters and so just adding that to your your sort of library and your your media diet is is a nice way to just remind yourself of those other lenses if you yourself identify as this het um yeah, and then the other thing would be social media. I mean, if you're a, like if you're a Twitter scroller or Facebook or whatever it is that you do, um, follow some folks who are LGBTQ so that you can see sort of some more perspectives, see what they're talking about, see what's happening in, you know, sort of on LGBTQ Twitter, um, and and bring that into your day to day. If we, there are some interesting research. I mean, I have some books behind me that. Uh, are more professional reading, but I think um, honestly for teachers who are so busy, I would say the thing that it is that you will actually read or actually look at, that's your that's your mm. best resource. So <laughs> what do you think, Daniel? Well, I, my biggest resource has been Emily. Uh, and uh, you know, to be to be honest, I'm very humbled to to work alongside you uh, when it comes to this work because I mean just I, I still I still haven't gotten to the bottom of all the work that Emily has done and just like looking at of course blog posts podcasts and then academic publications papers the works and there's there's just so much there that I'm working my way through and just working on this project alongside you has been really an amazing learning experience for me um being an ally aspiring ally um so I, I feel like having um, people who like Emily, who I know in the international school space, I think is really important um, because um, experts like her are able to kind of curate things. And so being in contact with Emily and following her on Twitter has been really great because it lets me as sort of a layman um, see sort of what she would say applies to our context that it, that because our context is so unique and there's not that much literature that's out there about LGBTQ plus in international schools. It's, it's, it's an yeah, intersectional space. Um, and then in addition, um, I really enjoy uh, following the uh, Queer Eddie Chat uh, thread and, um, and just like seeing all of the voices, especially international school voices, um, in particular Kanako Sua and Justin Garcia, I find, um, they, they both sort of bring in other elements of classroom teaching and how they connect to LGBTQ plus. And so things like ELL, um, anti-racism work, and just kind of seeing those intersections and juggling that, which I feel like a lot of what we do is, um, is, is we want to focus on specific identities, but never lose sight of the intersections that are happening around us. Um, and then the last resource that's been really valuable to me uh, is Lily Zhang. Uh, who is a DEI consultant and strategist um, based in the States. Um, and what she does, she also kind of brings, she, she's juggling these balls of, of you know, obviously LGBTQ+, um, she is trans, and so she's able to bring that in, but also gender, being transgender, also race, um, bringing in all of these things together and, and never dropping any of those balls while talking about it. Um, which I think in sort of our very specialized sort of space, it's really important to get 
allies working sort of in parallel and unison so that we can understand the parallels between our work. Yeah, that's, you know, it's a great point because I've also, you know, seen the example of, oh, okay, we're going to focus on just LGBTQ plus identities, but all of the books that we've brought in are just about white gay men. And so, you know, again, especially thinking about in a school where, you know, all of your students aren't that one singular uh, strand of identity, uh, it's so important to take, you know, Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw's intersectionality into account and really be thinking about what is the story that you're telling about queerness? Are you saying it only exists in one place? Um, so that, that's really important. And I, I love that you both touch upon, you know, that Twitter is a great space to, to stay connected and, um, and to just sort of learn and, and follow. And, and you can lurk if you're curious and look at the resources. Um, you know, I, I also get great book suggestions from, uh, from that space too. Uh, and of course, the both of you are, are really great about sharing resources and learning opportunities on Twitter. So um, what's, what's coming out? What should we watch out for that's, that's coming from Emily and Daniel? Well, um, speaking, you had mentioned Justin Garcia, Daniel. Um, they are one of the co-collaborators that um, is working with me on an LGBTQ affinity group for international educators. So we actually have our first meeting coming up on the 28th of June. So if, um, I'm, I'm Pam, so that's why I'm part of the organization. We have a couple of different uh, people, LGBTQ folks who help just get it started, get it off the ground and everyone is welcome to join. It's just, um, it's a safe space for, um, you know, supporting and celebrating and um, sharing ideas. So LGBTQ uh, educators and leaders in international schools, very welcome. And you could probably the best way to find that is, <laughs> I feel like we're really like we should get sponsored by Twitter here but <laughs> find find me on Twitter to register and um, we'd love to to have everyone there um yeah and, and I I'm going to be there as well um and I think that uh in terms of other things that I have coming up um I I guess I'm trying to take a break this summer a bit, but um, I always kind of have like an infographic or two that pops out um, and then maybe an article or two and then uh, perhaps another podcast uh, or so. But I feel like um, those sorts of affinity groups, those kinds of times to kind of not hit the reset button on the school year, but to kind of reflect on it and to, to sort of think about what what are we doing going forward in this next year and how are we going to advocate for moving forward? Um, how far have we moved forward? Um, and I think that that's sort of my big question is, it's, it's kind of like, well, we've put this stuff out there. We've, we've spoken our pieces and we've, we've advocated for what we believe in. Now, how are the powers that be, how are schools and educators and leaders going to respond to this? Um, and I'm hoping that it's, positive movement. Yeah, I, I hope so as well. You know, and it's interesting. Uh, I don't know. And this is all just anecdotal observation, but I've really been trying to watch closely throughout uh, the month of June during Pride to see, you know, which schools are showing up during Pride. Um, and I, I think I was hoping, okay, this year it would 
feel like we've made some progress, but I don't know that it really has. Like, um, you know, there's there's a few schools that have been sharing some things, but it's still it still feels pretty silent um, to me. I don't I don't know if that's both what your observations have been as well or not, or if you if you'd want to comment on that. I I got kind of the same vibe. I know there's a lot going on within schools and between schools, um, but I think the very public declarations of pride um, are still. I think they're still not really happening. Um, I mean, I remember it wasn't that long ago when Pride was really only for LGBTQ folks. Like anyone else was not even aware of it. I don't think mm -hmm. now we've got um, we've got all the corporations on board um, and all of the rainbow logos for Jude. Like that was within what five years of that there were zero, and now it's virtually everyone. So you know, hopefully schools will be next, right? We're going to be seeing <laughs> all the all the um, logos for different organizations. Search Associates is going to turn theirs, you know, rainbow <laughs> for June. Um, but I, I, I think we still have a ways to go. I think I think to go back to, you know, the, the start of this conversation, we talked, we were talking about the difference between intent and impact. And right now, we still have a lot of teachers who say like, I feel supportive inside internally. I believe I am an ally because of what's in my heart. Um, and we need to align that intention more with the actual impact for students and communities so that it's more visible, so that it's more accessible, so that it's more impactful. Um, and so, yeah, let's keep watching this space. Of course, every month is, Pride Month, but I wonder if we're going to see something different, you know, June 2022, for example, let's keep working on it. Mm -hmm. I love that. And I think that's, uh, you know, maybe an interesting question for folks who are listening right now to ask themselves, you know, what was your school's intent and impact for Pride 2021? And what would you like it to be for 2022? I love that. Thanks, Emily. I, I mean, I, I just feel incredibly humbled to be able to, you know, have the opportunity to talk about these topics, and 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 I feel like when being you know being cishet and reflecting on that, and and thinking about just how how I walk through life and how I sort of how I do my job, and being able having the opportunity to, to be a learner in that, in, in that and, and to be very, very imperfect in that, um, but then also have the uh, privilege of being able to discuss this and make mistakes and, and, and be able to talk with you know, experts and people who really know a lot more than me and learn from them. Um, I, to me, that's, that's uh, you know, truly an honor, so. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. Thank you both for for giving up your time. And you know, I, again, I, I kind of love that idea that yeah, you know, being reflective, being self aware, there's power and privilege in that. Um, and you know, how wonderful it would be if we get that message from a very very early age, so that as the both of you have said, that's something that we've rehearsed and developed our capacity for. So thank you both so much. Oh, thank you, Trisha, for having us. This has been such a nice conversation and a great opportunity to connect. And yeah, I really appreciate you having us on.
I, I really appreciate both of you and hoping to see you June 28th. I will make sure that I include that in the show notes too, so that people can, can find that and join. Yeah. Thank you. Great.